ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring G Zero World, a podcast series by G Zero Media that dives into international issues of the day with host Ian Bremmer. In just a minute, we're going to play an episode from this series in which host Ian Bremmer speaks with the author and historian Neil Ferguson about his new book, Disaster which details how human history has been shaped by catastrophes. Chief Content Officer at G Zero Media, Tony Masoulis, spoke with FP Playlist about the mission of the podcast and how they put it together. One thing I always find very impressive about almost anything that, that Ian Bremmer touches and it comes across in this podcast is he's able to tell these big, important global stories, but keep it interesting and keep it engaging and sometimes even fun. How do you do that in the podcast? Do you have a, you know, do you have a secret sauce to that? Yeah, so that's sort of an overarching philosophy for our work at G0, actually. I mean, we sort of approach everything from a macro perspective of understanding some through lines, right? And and right now, just about everything touches politics and policy, societal trends, and of course, technology. And I think when we start from there, we can find a lot of really compelling stories that relate to a lot of people around the world, right? And then from there, it's kind of been a founding principle here at G0 that we do bring some aspect of humor, a little bit of lightheartedness to it. I think some of that is Ian's own personality, right? I mean, I think he's a little bit cheeky, doesn't take himself too seriously, which is part of the work that we do. We want to make foreign policy and global affairs entertaining uh, as well as informative. And, you know, G0, to explain what that means for just a second, because I don't think everybody gets what G0 means, our title, you know, is a theory that um, traditional global alliances and partnerships like the G20, the G7, are not providing the kind of global leadership that they once did, right? And we're kind of in a bit of a power vacuum right now. And there's so much happening, you know, as the U.S. is kind of no longer as prevalent a force globally in terms of democracy and, and 
moral leadership as China emerges, right, as, as ever more important globally, uh, certainly economically and, and even beyond. And as our traditional allies are kind of in a position of picking and, ch- you know, having to make choices about how they interact with not only China, but other authoritarian regimes, right? I mean, I think that now is the time for us to take that step back and really help people understand where we're at globally, you know, and and where we're heading and and where do we want to be heading. And I think each of these stories that we cover has some little kernel of that within it. Yeah, who would have ever thought at the beginning of last year that something happened happening in Wuhan, which I admit I had never heard of that town, would, you know, have us all in our homes and wearing masks and disinfecting our takeout containers for a few months at least. And and that, by the way, 18 months later, after something has so badly impacted so many corners of the globe, we still can't seem to come to any consensus about how to move forward, right? Doesn't that just speak volumes about where the world, talk about a G0 world, right? There you have it. I know. Well, also the, the way the conversation is slightly changed now, I think, with the Delta variant surging. But for a while, the conversation in, in the U.S. certainly and in Europe was turning to the pandemic going into the rearview mirror, you know. And at the same time, like that was right at the same time where it was like it was just imploding in India. And it was just this shared problem. But somehow it's, you know, almost dividing the world further, just the, this, the radically different ways in which it's been, been experienced. I think that's right. And I mean, I'm sure you know and have interviewed or, or spoken to Laurie Garrett, who I think is just an amazing uh, science writer, health, health journalist. But, you know, she has, and others, uh, have raised the point that in terms of pandemic response, you know, the, the traditional sort of thinking that the wealthier nations would fare better because they have better resources and better access to care just did not prove to be true. And in fact, in the end, it was like political response that made the difference, right? There were some poorer countries that fared better and some very wealthy countries, the United States included, that at least in the initial phases uh, had some real missteps, right? It kind of felt like arrogance played the, was the thing. Like, how arrogant was your leadership? And that cut across many countries, it, you know, it, it, not just wealthy countries. But, you know, were they arrogant enough to say, we can manage this, or this won't affect us, or we're stronger than this? Or did they have the humility to say, we can't do this, you know, um, and, and shut down mm-hmm. and, and take it seriously? Or the cases where politics and, you know, chasing the poll, the polling and how their constituents felt mattered more than following the science, right? That wasn't a uniquely American experience. Obviously, that was true in Brazil. It was tr- true initially for Boris Johnson. The episode is a conversation that Ian had with the historian Neil Ferguson, who has a new book out called Doom. It's all about preparedness for disaster, be it a pandemic or all of these hurricanes that are, you know, hitting our our coasts, earthquakes, climate change. He makes the point, as much as we said, you know, I, and I'm guilty of it too, I think we all have in the media used the word unprecedented for the COVID-19 pandemic. The truth is, historically, that's not really true. It might be true in our lifetimes. And it's also probably not going to be the last time that we encounter this. And it's, it, if we don't learn from history, we're, we keep repeating it, right? And doesn't he say something in the book that you, you don't get the crisis that you expect? Right, exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. Like, we're all, uh, and- we're all waiting for climate change, which is undoubtedly a crisis. But what is the thing that is brewing just outside the corner of our eye that's actually going to be the next 
major devastating crisis. That's right. And actually, he took a little bit of heat among the reviewers of his book for that take on, on climate change, kind of you know, painting it as it's so far down the road that it shouldn't be the top priority when we're in the middle of things like a public health crisis. There are some who would say, unfortunately, you have to learn how to walk and chew gum, right? It's, you can't sort of put off the long-term problems waiting to happen because there's an immediate crisis, and that's the challenge of governance. That was Tony Masulis. And here now is the episode from G-Zero World, How Human History is Shaped by Disaster. We've been dealing with pandemics from the earliest recorded history. Thucydides writes about a pandemic in the history of the Peloponnesian War. So the last thing 2020 was, was unprecedented. Hello and welcome to the G-Zero World Podcast. Here you'll find extended versions of interviews from my show on public television. I'm Ian Bremmer, and today we are looking at the geopolitics of catastrophe. From earthquakes and hurricanes to famines and pandemics, the inevitable media strike, where do we draw the line between what we consider natural disasters and those caused by humans? And as some parts of the world put COVID-19 behind them or try to, how do we stop it from happening again? I'm talking to Stanford historian and best-selling author Neil Ferguson. He also has a mean Scottish brogue who just is out with a surprisingly chipper new book about the history of disasters. It's called DOOM, all caps, The Politics of Catastrophe. Let's get to it. We'll be right back after the... My name's Kurt Jaimungo. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Break. The Horn of Africa is in turmoil. From the Sudanese revolution that toppled a dictator, to civil war in Ethiopia and the jostling of foreign powers. The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group that unpacks it all. Dive deep into the geopolitics and diplomacy with host Alan Boswell and expert guests throughout the region. Listen to The Horn wherever you get your podcasts. Neil Ferguson, global historian of some repute. How are you doing, my friend? Uh, very well, Ian. Great to see you. So the new book is DOOM, all capital letters. Did this come purely out of the pandemic, or had you been planning this kind of a topic beforehand? I spent 2019 thinking about a book on disasters and dystopias and spent a lot of that year reading science fiction because as a historian, I started to worry that I wasn't thinking enough about discontinuities of the sort that science fiction writers are good at thinking about. So I'd actually been plotting a book about the, the history of future disasters when one uh, arrived and that meant that the book could shift its emphasis uh, from science fiction to reality. 
And things, things don't really change, right, incrementally. They really change when suddenly a crisis occurs and then all of the incremental change manifests in decisions that are taken. Well, from my vantage point, history is one disaster after another. And it's extraordinary the extent to which human history is shaped by these enormous uh, interruptions, which uh, often, nearly always take people by surprise. It's one of the reasons you can't really find a, a cycle of history, though people are always looking for those things, because there's something random about the incidents of disaster, whether it's man-made or, or natural. And as you say, Ian, when the disaster strikes, even if people have been predicting it for years, it's suddenly a very surprising thing uh, at the time. And that causes a, a strange acceleration process in, in some, at least some domains. And I think we all experienced that in, in 2020 and into this year. What I wanted to do was to write a book that would put this disaster, the one we've been living through, in some kind of historical perspective, because I got a bit sick of journalists saying it was unprecedented uh, uh, or a year like no other, because from a historian's point of view, it was quite the opposite. We've been dealing with pandemics uh, from the earliest recorded history. Thucydides writes about a pandemic in the history of the Peloponnesian War. So the last thing 2020 was, was unprecedented. In fact, it was very familiar to a historian, just surprising to most of us, because we don't really remember anything like this. It's been a while since this kind of pandemic struck. Of course, we had HIV AIDS uh, not so very long ago. And, and yet this seemed surprising because we'd forgotten what a pandemic of a respiratory disease is like. And for that, you have to go back to the 1950s. And most people don't remember that. And the, and the Spanish flu um, epidemic, I mean, that when I hear people talk about it, I would say the thing I hear most frequently is that the basic um, guidance that was being provided uh, by political leaders at that point, stay away from people, wear a mask. I mean, these are the same sorts of guidance that we're giving people 100 years later, that the technology around vaccines has improved, but not so much how to deal with the pandemic. It's actually quite remarkable when you read accounts of the 1918-19 pandemic, uh, which was called the Spanish influenza for no very good reason. It just happened that the Spanish papers were reporting well, they were writing accurately. About it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everybody else had censorship because they were involved in World War One. Uh, if you look at how the U.S. handled it, it's actually very strikingly familiar. There's extraordinary decentralization. Stump, some cities uh, do uh, significant amounts of social distancing and uh, uh, what we would probably call lockdowns today, and others do a lot less, and the outcomes therefore vary hugely from city to city and state to state. But you get familiar uh, reactions too. In San Francisco, there was an anti-mask league which objected to mask wearing in the city as a violation of civil liberties. Throughout the 20th century, influenza posed a problem. It struck again in the 30s, it struck globally in 1957-58. And the, the story was pretty much the same uh, in the sense that there was a scramble to find a vaccine. They failed in 1918-19. Science still really hadn't got to the point that you could figure this out, certainly not rapidly. By 1957, they were able to put a vaccine together for the then Asian flu in just a matter of, of months. Uh, and it's interesting that in 57 58 they didn't do uh, much in the way of, uh, of social distancing and nothing in the way of lockdowns. In fact, they left schools and pretty much everything else open and just focused on the vaccine. Uh, it's worth adding one thing which I think was often lost in last year's discussions. 1918-19 uh, was a lot worse 
uh, than COVID-19. Even if you accept the very highest estimate for deaths, uh, and you may have seen some uh, pretty eye popping figures in the economist recently uh, yeah, covid well, is still well going to be an order millions yeah well yeah. covid is still going yeah. to be an order of magnitude smaller yeah. in in mm. its impact than the spanish influenza of 1918-19 and it's worth also adding that that killed young people and people in the prime of life this is a very unusual pandemic in the in the sense that it's ageist and we really haven't had an ageist pandemic before nearly all the pandemics in history have been equal opportunity killing the very young as much as the very old and in 1918-19 killing people in the prime of life now, one thing I thought was really interesting about the book and, and, and actually quite uh, counter-conventional wisdom is you say that the political leaders, the top of the pyramid, are typically not the ones to blame for response to catastrophes when they go amiss. It's usually inside the system. It's usually mid-level technocrats and bureaucrats. Explain that, because that's certainly not the way we've been pointing the finger uh, in response to coronavirus over the past year and a half. Well, of course, it's very easy, tempting and, and perhaps irresistible to blame the person at the top when a disaster strikes. And last year, uh, it was pretty much the default setting for most journalists, certainly liberal journalists, to blame Donald Trump. And their counterparts in Britain blame Boris Johnson and their counterparts in Brazil blame Jair Bolsonaro. It was the simplest way to tell the story that you had a populist in power and that was why there was excess mortality. But there are a few problems wrong with this theory. I mean, one is that there were plenty of countries that didn't have populist leaders that did just as bad or worse. Uh, and that, that, I think, was often overlooked in some of the coverage. There was a problem with the counterfactual. Are you telling me that if Joe Biden had got the job a year early, that somehow the US would not have had excess mortality? That seems implausible. And I don't even think people in the Biden administration believe that. I mean, Ron Klain has acknowledged that if in 2009 the swine flu had been as bad as COVID, then the, the Obama administration would have had a public health disaster. But the most important argument, Ian, that the book makes is that in most disasters, when people are inclined to blame the person at the top, on closer inspection, the point of failure is not there. When the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up, initially the press wanted to somehow pin it on Ronald Reagan, who was then president. It was 1986. And they wanted to say, oh, the thing blew up because they rushed the launch because Reagan wanted to reference it in the State of the Union. And this was total nonsense. There was no such story. It turned out that the real problem was that the NASA engineers knew there was a 1% probability the thing would blow up on launch, but that had been turned by the NASA bureaucrats into one in 100,000. And that was the point of failure in reality. The engineers knew how dangerous the shuttle was. I tried to show in the book that that's often the case, that although the buck stops with the president, in reality, when a disaster occurs, it's not really the president who's the key person or the key institution. In the case of COVID, if you ask the thing, the, what the things were that caused excess mortality north of half a million in the US, presidential decisions don't come near the top of the list. CDC's failure to ramp up testing was very little to do with President Trump's decision making. Uh, the, the failure to develop any kind of contact tracing that works didn't happen because the president vetoed it. It was big tech that decided not to do it. We were terrible at protecting the elderly in care homes as they were in Europe. That wasn't presidential. And then, of course, quarantines just weren't enforced in any efficient 
uh, or effective way, that's not got to do with the president. So in the book, I argue the president said a whole range of very dumb things. He misunderstood, he miscalculated, he misled the public. He became more and more reckless as 2020 went on and the election got nearer. But he that's not really time. why. He wasted time, though, no? I mean, you were asking before, you said, you know, what was happening in February and March? I mean, the Americans, especially compared to Europe, the Americans had time. That time was wasted. Was that a systemic issue or was that a president issue? Well, oddly, oddly enough, if one goes back to January, Trump understood and some of his advisors understood that there were things that could be done. And it was Trump who, uh, who argued for a ban on travel from China in January, for which he was roundly criticized uh, in the media for overreaction and, of course, xenophobia. I mean, if one thinks back to the debates right at the beginning of 2020, they hadn't fallen into their neat partisan uh, compartments, as they later did. Uh, there were people in the Trump administration who understood very well what was going on. Matt Pottinger at the National Security Council, for example, and Senator Tom Cotton, and num a number of others. Even Peter Navarro, who was not widely respected on a range of issues, on this issue was On this one, he was right. actually ahead of the curve. That's right. And I think Trump's instincts as a populist were, in fact, to do travel restrictions and to, to close the borders. He was talked out But, but to tell the American the people that there was nothing to worry about it was going to go away magically. But, Let's but, keep them on the cruise right. ship because that'll keep the numbers down. I mean, come on, you have uh, to admit and, and those interest, things, Neil. The inter absolutely. And I yeah. make the point repeatedly that, that Trump went worse and worse off track. But the initial impulse, uh, I don't think, was completely wrong. What happened was that other people in the administration said, oh, but hang on, we've got an election coming up. You can't do anything to derail the economy. Uh, and, and Trump knew that this was bad. I mean, at least uh, we, we understand this from some of the people who talked to him last year, uh, but was persuaded by some people in the administration who won the argument that it was better to gamble that it was just the seasonal influenza rather than to risk the election by derailing the economic recovery, which was what he was going to run on. So I think if you look at the decision-making processes that happened in democracies around the world, similar things went on in other countries. The story in Britain, where I am right now, is a bit different because they before didn't you, have an election. Before you go to the UK, though, I just, I just, just make the point, because on this point, at least, that decision of whether or not to gamble the economy because the election is coming up or to say heavy on, um, we, this isn't a big deal, uh, that, that decision ultimately is made by the president of the United States. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. remember, the key failures that led to the excess mortality, as I said earlier, if you're trying to ask what really caused the excess mortality, those weren't presidential decisions. And right. it's hard to say what percentage of the deaths you can attribute to presidential decision making, but it's certainly not as high as, say, Jim Fallows argued when he said in The Atlantic last year, oh, this is like pilot error when a light aircraft crashes. I'm here to tell you that being president of the United States is not like flying a light aircraft. And the decision-making process in an emergency isn't at all like that process. It's, it's yep. a decision-making process that involves no, multiple agencies. Ian, there's even an, a secretary, an assistant secretary for pandemic preparedness. There's a guy whose one job this was, Robert Cadleck, inside the Department of Health and Human Services. And he, his role reminds me a bit of NASA and the space shuttle, because he was involved in producing a pandemic preparedness plan in 2018, uh, which was one of the reasons that the Economist Intelligence Unit and others said that the U.S. was better Would prepared than any Absolutely. other country. Absolutely. So, so yeah. we, on paper, the U.S. was really well prepared. But the people doing the preparation, the bureaucrats, kind of knew 
as Cadillac admitted in a lecture that I quote in Doom, that we'd be SOL, I'll not spell out the acronyms, we, we'd we be S out of luck yeah, if yeah. there really was a pandemic. So I think the point of failure really doesn't lie at the top. It lies with the people whose one job it was to do pandemic preparedness, who did it on paper, but suspected rightly that in practice, the pandemic preparedness plan would be of very little use at all. And I think there's a certain myopia that has crept in that I think we both experienced in January last year at the World Economic Forum when the entire agenda was dominated by climate change, even in the first inning of a global pandemic, and pandemics had fallen out of the, the, the risk report that the World Economic Forum publishes each year. So one of the arguments of doom is, sure, worry about climate change, but remember it's a relatively slow-moving uh, threat to humanity compared with some of the, the other threats that we face. Uh, and, and a contagious uh, coronavirus was just... One of those, uh, a lot can happen much faster than climate change, including man-made disasters. Having said that, you just said that the impact of coronavirus, of COVID, has been much, much lower, much more limited than all of these other crises we're talking about. I mean, if you want to take the long view, and that's what the risk report from the WEF, for example, is trying to do, wasn't it correct that they should be focusing much more on climate change than a pandemic? Well, I thought it was a bit surreal to be talking about climate change when a pandemic was just getting underway and to have forgotten about that threat. But let me not downplay the significance of this disaster. Although it's not one of history's big disastrous pandemics, it's nowhere close to the Black Death of the mid-14th century, the economic consequences of this pandemic have been much greater than of past pandemics because of the way that we chose to deal with it. And we, we administered the huge shock to the global economy, which really has no precedent, by imposing lockdowns on major uh, economies. And then we sought to offset those with massive fiscal and monetary expansion. And what's interesting to me about COVID is that it's public health impact, which will probably kill, let's see, 0.1% of, of the world's population tops by the time this is done, uh, is going to be a lot less than its global economic impact, which was to cause a huge shock. Uh, Larry Summers estimated last year that the cost to the US economy of COVID could be something close to 90% of gross domestic product, which I think he calculated was multiple years of climate change all administered in the space of, well, 18 months so far. So I don't want to downplay COVID. It's not the Black Death. It's not the Spanish flu. But it was a really big shock. And we'd taken our eye off that ball, despite numerous warnings, because global climate change had become the issue that Greta Thunberg said would bring the end of the world. But the point I make in Doom is that we can end the world in a lot of other ways much faster. A nuclear war still would be a way of causing massive, massive uh, damage to humanity in a really short time frame. And it's, lot, it's not as if that risk has evaporated. In fact, it's conceivably fact, it going up. It has gone away at all. And, and, right. it, and it is interesting that, I mean, nobody talks about the U.S.-Russia nuclear balance today even though there's not been any meaningful reduction of risk in terms of nuclear confrontation compared to where we were before the Soviet Union collapsed. Why do you think that is, Neil? 
Well, I think partly because uh, with the end of the Cold War, we all told ourselves we don't need to think about that anymore. I'm old enough to remember anxieties through the 1980s that there might be either uh, through miscalculation or aggression, a, a nuclear war. After 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union, most people stopped worrying about that, uh, even although the nuclear arsenals were not entirely scrapped. On the contrary, they remained intact. And I think the other reason is that the, the geopolitics has shifted so that if there's a Cold War in our time, it's going to be between the United States and the People's Republic of China, which has a much smaller nuclear arsenal. Though, of course, it's building it very it's rapidly it. up. Yes, it is indeed. And I yeah. would say the risk that is very near term that we don't think enough about is that what feels like a Cold War at times between the US and China could escalate into a hot war quite quickly. And that wouldn't be a war like the wars in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, the wars that we've experienced recently. As Jim Stavridis uh, has pointed out in his recent uh, book, this, this was a war that would potentially yeah. escalate to a nuclear conflict. So I think we, we, we mustn't ignore or, or dismiss climate change as a threat, but we have to recognise that there are lots of different forms of doom that we face, and that's just one of them. So before we close, you just mentioned China, and I, I did find it very interesting in the book when you talked about the fact that the United States emerges in a better power position coming out of coronavirus, not only than its allies, but even than China. And of course, China, despite its cover-up of coronavirus for the first weeks, responded quite quickly after that. Their supply chain was back up and running well over a year ago. They were one of the only major economies in the world to have significant growth in 2020. The United States certainly did not. In the context of China, given all of that, why would you say the U.S. emerges in better position? Well, I was writing this and finishing this book around a year ago when it was conventional to argue that the US had really screwed it up and China had sort of won 2020. But I think uh, it was overlooked by most commentators. Firstly, that the Chinese economy had suffered some quite severe damage. Whether you look at the demographics or consumer demand, that the way they kept the show on the road was the old model of fixed asset investment, uh, more yep. coal burning power stations, more debt. More uh, debt. And you you can see already in recent easing by the Chinese government that they're aware that it's softening. So I don't think the economic story was ever going to be that great. And I never bought the 9% growth in 2021 projections. But I think more important, uh, Ian, was the loss of reputation that China suffered. Uh, if you looked at the Pew surveys from late last year, and again, the most recent ones, the world has turned against China. It's not just the US that has done this. All across the developed world, as well as in countries such as India and the emerging world, China has suffered massive reputational damage and wolf warrior diplomacy, far from improving matters, has made has made it worse. So I think that's the reason that China's actually in a worse position than it was 18 months ago, despite having apparently weathered the public health storm. Neil Ferguson, the book is Doom, and he's the right person to be talking about it. Neil, thanks for joining today. Thanks so much, Ian. And that was the episode from G Zero World, how human history is shaped by disaster. My thanks to Tony Mesulis and the team at G Zero Media. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>